Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 225 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. I think we've put our, our, our flag in the ground that 2023 is going, is shaping up to be, you know, the year of AI, right? Like, you know, I think, I think it's going to be the year where, especially all the generative AI shit, but just AI in general really blows up, really takes off. You know, it's been going on for a while. You know, we're, we've been this, been in this like, AI spring, you know, shaking off the frost of the last AI winter um, for at least a few years now where, you know, suddenly like everything is about AI analytics. You know, I feel, I feel like big data was supplanted by AI a few years ago and the way that people talk about, you know, the, the general like big trend uh, driving technology, the future, you know, and that makes sense. You know, the, the, the data is what provided the capital and the you know, resources necessary to train and create and discipline and uh, apply all of these AI systems. And so, you know, in, in this kind of, you know, the, in, in the linear mind of the technocrat, you know, we are, we are now reaching the next, uh, evolution of the technological system, um, with, with AI. I feel like, you know, all the shit the last few years around Web3 and crypto was almost this, you know, uh, this, this, this detour, right? You know, a, a bit of summer loving, right? It happened so fast. Uh, ooh, it was, you know, it was, it was nothing but passion, uh, and long nights there for a while. And then it, but then it was over in a flash, right? Um, and I feel like a lot of that money, um, to the degree that it exists, uh, or that it, it wasn't just completely evaporated by Web3. A lot of the money laying around for, you know, tech investment, a lot of the applications, you know, a lot of people looking for applications, um, in different industries are, I think, going to start looking more at AI, right? AI is this kind of held up as this like a universal hammer for every nail, right? It, it's hard to, it's hard to look at. Whereas I think with Web3, a lot of the shit around crypto and blockchain, you know, the applications to other industries never came. And I saw people, you know, bending over so far backwards to try to, you know, uh, even just contemplate, speculate about how blockchain can be applied to some other industry, you know, that they, that they broke them, their damn back trying to, trying to make it happen. AI, I think, the, the applications, while they may still be fantastical, they at least in like a, a, a cognizant way make more sense. They're more apparent. They're more obvious how AI can be applied to a vast number of industries. You know, in that though, the AI ain't, ain't just coming from nowhere. Uh, and it's not just some, you know, uh, magical thing falling from the magical manna from the heaven. Uh, you know, it's not springing forth from the head of Zeus. None of that, you know, none of that kind of ex nihilo myth, right? That created from nothing. Uh, you know, a, a lot of this AI, you know, it still needs to be trained. It still needs to be developed. It still needs to be refined. Uh, the technology is not quite there. Um, there's a lot of bullshitting happening. I think that's really key here. Like, and there, I think there's a core irony is that the more, the more we talk about AI, the more advanced 
AI systems become in a real sense, right? Like the more actually technologically advanced they become, the more impressive their capabilities. There's also an irony here, I think, where it, it requires more, not less, human labor to make them work, to prop them up, to support them, uh, you know, to run interference for them when they don't work, right? Like I, I came up with the the term in the analysis Potemkin AI, um, uh, you know, at this at, at the same time, like literally published the same week as Astra Taylor came up with her, you know, uh, automation charade essay and the photomation, you know, and that all you know came out in the midst of. You know, uh, uh, people like, you know, Mary Gray uh, and Siddharth Siri writing their book, Ghost Work. You know, all of this was happening at the same exact time in like mid 2018, right? Which is, goddamn, that's like, you know, almost five years ago, four and a half years ago now. Um, and, and, and I think the writing was on the wall there. Like that, that, it was clear that those were concepts whose time had come that we needed to understand these you know, as I've put it in other work, right, the, the humans hidden inside mechanical minds. Um, and, and the more that shit like open AIs, you know, uh, you know, the Dolly 2 and chat GPT uh, and, and all of this kind of stuff, the more that this stuff advances, the more the, the applications roll out, the more universal they become, um, the more inescapable these intermediaries are in our lives. You know, I think these concepts of photomation and Potemkin AI and ghost work are only becoming more relevant. We're only going to see more and more of this kind of stuff. Uh, they're going to get more sophisticated at hiding it uh, inside the machine. You know, they're going to get more sophisticated in terms of uh, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, piecemeal ghost work, AI labor that is needed, right? It's not going to just be, I don't think it's going to just be the, uh, the, the typical CAPTCHA style, right? Like draw a box around, you know, uh, cars and label them cars, right? Like that kind of really st standard object uh, recognition style uh, training data for AI. I think this AI is going to become, you know, or the AI labor needed, the data labor needed to train these AIs and to run and so to support them in their operations is going to become much more sophisticated, its own form of expertise. It's going to create, you know, my projection is that because it's already happening, I just think that we're going to see it even more intensified that the market for this kind of data labor for AI is not only going to expand, it's going to become much more nuanced, right? There's going to be like, you know, these specific markets within this market for AI data labor uh, that has, you know, uh, really particular human expertise behind it. So thinking about things like uh, medical AI diagnostics tools, right? Like, you know, here we're talking about people that need essentially the expertise of like a radiologist technician to properly label and then go back and, and you know, do validation of an AI trying to diagnose uh, cancers from, you know, CAT scans or something like that, right? Like, you know, that that's, that's a level of expertise uh, that is real in order to create that data, at least create good data. Now, of course, 
uh, it's highly unlikely that the people doing that data labor are going to be getting paid uh, and have the same you know, rights and status and position and, and income uh, as people doing, as other humans with the same expertise doing the same kind of labor, you know, uh, doctor, radiologist and, uh, you know, America are going to be getting paid uh, you know, exponentially more and have much more status in society than people doing essentially the same exact job in, you know, say India, uh, but they're doing it for an AI uh, to train an AI, right? Like all that has to say is that there was a recent report that just came out looking at this the market for what is called worldwide data and worldwide data annotation tools industry is expected to reach 13.2 billion dollars by 2030 according to the firm research and markets a market analysis firm so in other words the the industry for doing this kind of data and you know ai and machine learning data labor uh is is growing to being a multi-billion dollar industry uh and there's a lot of in, uh, a lot of companies out there companies you've never heard of right it's gone way beyond like the amazon mechanical turk you know uh the the old days of that being the one main platform for piecework or click work you know there is now a very large as i say you know tens of billions of dollar uh industry um around doing data annotation uh, specifically for um, contributing to the training and advancement and development of AI and machine learning. All of this is all of this is context for you know a story I want us to talk about a really really great essay that came out in M plus one but you know I just I just went off there for for a little yeah. while so <laughs> I'll throw it over to you Ed. Also, as a sort of preface to this article, I think I read you know you know one of my favorite um, newsletters is uh, Read Max by Max Reed, great name, and uh, there's uh, a recent post that was about artificial intelligence that I think is really a great place to also uh, look and think through because, you know, Max's whole premise here is that last year it was clear that crypto was assuming a sort of hyper object status in people's minds as a source of investment and exaggerated and excessive returns uh, as uh, technological optimism and, and, and fanaticism and delusion about what sort of projects would be possible in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And that next year, with the advent of, or this year, you know, 2023 we're in, um, with the advent of artificial intelligence, chatbots, generative um, programs, um, and a growing centrality of conversations about how this stuff actually works, right? It's clear that this year's hyperobject, or one of the major hyperobjects would be generative or... Uh, Artificial intelligence, more generally, right? Um, pointed out, I think something I didn't notice because I haven't really uh, followed their work in a, in, in a minute. But Kevin Roos over at the Times, for example, you know, over the last year, listeners of the show will know, like, centered themselves pretty heavily on covering Web three, the future. You know, this is the tech future. This is going to transform the internet. This is going to transform social relations as a result. The economy, maybe politics. Um, but that after the Fed simply hiked interest rates up to four or five point five percent, the pivot has been to the AI boom, 
specifically with you know the generative AI and the chat bots such as ChatGPT. And so looking at this shift, you know, the newsletter is asking, okay, well, you know, that's all fine and well, but what is AI, right? Like they're not they you know they approach it I think in the right way we're asking like okay I'm not really sure what AI is other than some sort of hyper object I'm not sure also what people mean when they say AI are they talking about generative AI are they talking about the ability to create passable compositions of photos of text of scripts of video uh, are they talking about information processing systems like facial recognition, like uh, early warning systems? Or the, you know what what are we talking about? Where are these things actually present? Or are we being ridiculous and talking about cognition and saying AI is um, artificial cognition? Here they're you know they're embarking on the research project which I think also is going to be an important one for anyone who's listening to just do also on their own at the same time as a sort of constant like um, stealing yourself against what will be a ridiculous wave of propaganda, but also a moment where it will pay to be attentive to some or, or, or base your critical on a basic level and curious and skeptical about narratives that are seen convenient and tidy about artificial intelligence. Um, Partly because there's a lot of money at play here, so it's important to understand where the money's coming from, and partly because it's going to have a large impact, whether or not there's anything there, actually, right? Because um, this is going to provide cover for all sorts of changes in the workplace, uh, in governance, um, in, in, in consumer products, and in business-to-business -business products, right, under the banner of AI, so the sort of basic question they they approach the first one out of seven is you know what is AI you know which I, you know to clarify what are people talking about are they talking about generation are they talking about prediction are they talking about social control are they talking about algorithms are they talking about a sentient being you know are they talking about models like what what is actually going on here and what and what do people mean when they say it? Which is important because, as we've talked about before, people are fast and loose with AI. You know, a key part, and I think on insight that Jermina Jathan's work at first is with Potemkin AI talking about how um, there are systems that we have on various levels of that uh, false and, and, and you know, frankly, fraudulent projection that are in some way, shape, or form, digital automated, but that the end result is not. And as you know, as as you talked about it, there are humans hidden in the machine. And, and a lot of times, when we just say AI, we're obscuring how much human labor is going on there, um, both as a as a shortcut to avoid people from paying too much scrutiny, and also as a way to like convince ourselves that actually it's a you know even though there's a bit bit of a human labor involved in the processes and ultimately automated a digital thing. Next question being, okay, well, how does AI work, right? I think a lot of, over the next year, you're going to see a huge effort from people to kind of either be intentionally uh, dense and, and vague about how it's working or ring alarm bells, right? Which Both of which are not help, helpful in the sense that there are, like, for example, with ChatGPT, a lot of alarm bells were rang about how this is going to displace and destroy the educational system. It is almost certainly not going to do that. And to ring that alarm emboldens and strengthens the case that people don't actually understand how disruptive this is and how we just need to channel its energies correctly to transform society, right? It ends up feeding the propagandistic argument that this is a 
This is a disruptive system, but not in the way that these Luddites and these primitivists think, right? It's disruptive because it's progressive, because it's transformational, because it's aspirational, and we just need to harness its energy just like we have every single time. It's very easy to see how not having a clear sense of how it's working leads to sensation on, on both ends. And in the chat GPT side, it can lead to sensation because, for example, when we're talking about education, you know, people may say like, oh, well, you know, it's creating convincing essays and articles and arguments. You know, learning how it works gives you the ability to prod it a little bit easier and see it's actually not doing that, right? If you ask it certain questions, it will hit a guardrail pretty quickly. And if it doesn't hit the guardrail, it will spit out nonsense. It will hallucinate, as as other um, AI scientists have referred to, where it will create internally coherent, but nonetheless factually inconsistent or factually wrong statements, saying that churros are good uh, to do surgery with because they're small, they fit in your hand, and they're easily to manipulate. Yeah, that's not that's not why things are good to do surgery <laughs> with, right? <laughs> you know, or giving uh, people. Uh, facts that are not r- true about themselves. I went on a, I went on Doug Henwood's show um, two, three weeks ago to talk with him and, and it got most of his biographical details wrong when he simply asked it, even though it has access to, you know, a large data set pulled from in part Google searches, right? And it has the ability to, you know, to at least get some information, right? It doesn't. Well, why doesn't it? Again, part of that has to deal with how this, how the model is actually constructed. And this also leads us to why it can't do real symbolic thinking, right? Or why it makes the certain mistakes that it does, why it's not actually thinking. And instead is, is at, you know, as best doing a pastiche of, of, um, of, of, of data that's, you know, cobbled together inside of it. Right. So I think that the question, how does the yeah, AI work, not only is not in, instructive here and, and would let us, for example, look at ChatGBT and say, well, this is not like existential threat, but this is clearly going to provide cover for people who are interested in using an existential threat to rearrange education in a way that they insist will be resilient, but is actually probably just going to be what more profitable, more surveillance heavy, um, uh, more regimented, more disciplinary, and all the things that we don't actually want to see in education. I've spent a lot of time trying to, at a very small level and in very small steps, sometimes root out or prune back. What is new that is making AI suddenly hot is another but, question, before right? You, before you go off on that, I, I, I want to say something real quick that I'm thinking about. I think you hit on something really key here where expect of, uh, I mean, this is already happening, but expect an even larger market of consultants and technologists and uh, startups uh, telling these big institutions like, you know, university systems how to uh, future proof themselves against AI. Yeah. Yes. Right. So it's like, and that's either going to be how to change your systems uh, such that they are not disrupted by AI or how to harm, how to lean into it. Um, you know, how to, mm-hmm. uh, uh, how to disrupt, how to intentionally disrupt yourself uh, with AI. Right. But so it's either this, you know, defensive, against AI future-proofing or offensive with AI future-proofing. But either way, uh, like expect a large market for this shit to come, right? And, and I think it's like, you know, with a lot of this, it's nice to use very... 
also, you know, you talk about Kevin Roos and stuff, and that makes me think like, what are the what are the next like stupid fucking like metaphors and analogies that are going to be used for how to be like, you know, uh, for how to imagine uh, uh, and explain AI to the quote unquote layperson, right? And just to do so in a way that confuses the matter completely, confuses the mind because it's being spit out by confused minds, you know. It's and, and but I think. Uh, to me, the most powerful ones are always the most simple ones, right? Instead of being like, now, Ed, sit down and imagine um, a, a, a very large bicycle, you know, and there's like, you know, hubs and there's spokes and gears mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. chains. And, and that's what that's AI. AI is like a very large bicycle, Ed. And, you know, it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> instead, it's like, you know, it, it's the, uh, the, the thing we... The analogy we came across in reading that prop tech art, that article about prop tech, um, uh, and I think it was ProPublica, where they they were quoting from uh, like an, an old FTC commissioner who was like, oh, "Anytime yeah. you hear the word algorithm, just replace it with a, a guy named Bob." Right. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, an algorithm is setting prices for rental units. An AI system is setting prices for rental units in countries across the U.S. I, I, you know, a guy named Bob is setting prices for <laughs> like it just demystifies right. it. And I think when you hear people talk about like future proofing against AI, uh, replace it with like Kraken or Godzilla. Right. Like a mm-hmm. Kraken is coming to disrupt the <laughs> university system. Uh, um, and you have to you, you have to buy our our Kraken defense system, um, or you have to work with the Kraken uh, to reorganize the university. <laughs> like, like that's I think like this the kind you of wouldn't get you wouldn't want to get left behind by everyone else using kaiju's. That, you know, you, you need to you need to harness the power of the kaiju. <laughs> that's right. Which side of the Pacific Rim are you going to yeah, be on here? Like, <laughs> I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, the right side for a small cost. <laughs> All right, yeah, keep keep going. But I, I think that's something else we need to keep an eye out for is the the future proofing, whether defensive or offensive. Uh, a whole new industry is gonna is gonna boom around. Uh, you know convincing institution. I mean, it's already happening. It's already happening. A lot of this stuff is not like, Ooh, like this is going to be a new market. It's like, no, this is a market that already exists, which is just going to get really fucking big as more VC money, uh, pumps in, you know, into this bubble. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. As, as the, as you know, the, uh, parasites start to circle uh, and the vultures start to circle as well. And that brings us to the third one, right? Where, you know, the next question is like, okay, you know, what is different about this time? You know, wh- how can we historicize artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence developments to figure out why previous cycles of hype didn't look like this and why this one does and what changes have happened um, in how it's developed and how it's marketed, how it's covered that have shifted the attention that people are paying to it. And I think this is an important one. I mean, there are already some, you know, clear avenues to develop and look at here, right? One of them, of course, is the language, right? Um, One of, uh, you know, that can be as simple as just talking about AI ethics, right? Talking about human algorithm systems and the ways in which we want to ensure that they're just or sustainable or accountable and so on and so forth, right? The ways in which corporations talk about that, you know, it 
in of itself is a historical development that has led to different sorts of coverage, right? That has led to and opens up the door for, hmm, okay, can we have ethical AI? And then you can have some of the propagandists emerge and push it and say, well, not only can we, but we do. And in fact, I'll show you. It's right here. I have the, I have some. I have an ethical algorithm um, for you behind this bridge. And these sort of developments, these pushes, these changes of the language, how people think about, how people talk about these things, have effects on how people think about these things and what they're willing to entertain, what they're willing to think, what they're willing to argue about, what they're willing to, um, you know, suffer or push back against. You know, over time, I'm sure you, you know, one of the one of the really interesting things to watch for is how are people going to start talking about that, right? One one example is to just think about, for example, with crypto and NFTs. Think about how NFTs were talked about over the, f- the two years in which they really captured it. I mean, one year technically, but over the time in which they captured the attention of the public before the cycle of uh, collapses. There were a lot of experimenting and competing narratives or attempts to talk about how this could be a way to realize the non-speculative forms of financial uh, blockchain tech to provide you know, proof of X and proof of X independent of a central database, a central server, a state institution, you know, any sort of centralized holder that we would traditionally trust. You don't need to trust anymore. Um, and, and instead you can rely on these, on these, uh, you know, on, uh, on these sort of um, Im- immaterial records uh, to put, I'll put, I'll, to put, to describe it very nicely. But you also had other competing claims about NFTs, that NFTs would be able to realize a new property regime that would prioritize creators instead of distributors, instead of curators, instead of collectors. It would prioritize and incentivize creation um, and reward those people and provide for them more ability to have control over their work, over control of the rights of their work. That also, NFTs would not end up being a super speculative thing, but that the speculative nature of some NFT markets would be beneficial because not only now do you have an entire market that is redistributed in its in its prioritization to um, to the rights of the creators, but now you also have the chance for the creators to speculate on their own thing and to make amount of money that they never would be able to before. So they could have a living wage, they could have a payday, you know, and they could have creative control. You know, you can have all the things that you want, but usually have to give up one thing or the other for. And you also had NFTs emerge as um, as a more, uh, also as a, or claims about NFTs emerge as like, this is a way that we can do speculation that's good, right? We can use the financial incentive that might drive someone to speculate to drive people onto buying into projects that are capital starved. We can use NFTs as a way to raise revenue for a city in Wyoming, in an, an in a part of the land that doesn't get rain. We can use NFTs to raise funds for an island that we haven't bought yet and are trying to buy in the in the in, in the Pacific. We can use NFTs to prove that you attended a concert. We can use NFTs to uh, prove that you're a member of a social club full of people who bought funky looking apes, <laughs> you know, we can do all sorts of valuable and socially productive things with them. You know, these are something, you know, historicizing and thinking about the developments and the changes and the arguments in which why people started talking about something in a certain way is just as important as understanding how they work and what they actually are when we're talking about them and these sort of questions that they're talking about here for AI.
and then I can, you know, I'll, I'll kind of rattle off the last few so that we can, you know, make our way to the, you know, the, uh, the article, right? So next few are, you know, what is the scene slash culture around AI development? And that's kind of like asking to see like, okay, who, like, who are the people that are here? Who are the people that are here developing this thing, pushing it along? And, and why are they pushing it along? What values, what logic, what culture, what, what's going on? What is informing what they look at, what they prioritize, what they don't prioritize, right? Who is making money off of this and how? Again, always follow the money. You know, who are the financiers? Who are the people that stand to benefit? What are the things that the people who stand to benefit doing? You know, what influence are they having on the system? Um, what can we learn about them in their other ventures? The, an example that Max gives here is, and is, is, the, is an example you should always remember every single time someone talks about chat GPT. Every single time, right? Is that Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI... One, the thing that everyone is talking about now also ran another thing, WorldCoin, <laughs> or tried to make a thing called WorldCoin, where all you have to all you have to do is scan your eyeball into a Sauron-looking Palantir orb, and you do that, and you get one coin, and no one else can get that coin that's yours, and you get that, and you can't get another coin. Everyone in the world can get this coin, and. Um, Question mark and then profit, right? That thing was one of failed, failed so miserably. We relied on exploitation of workers in the global south. Also had some of the weirdest background origin story. Azalea Banks was associated with it. Sam Altman Friedman. Sam Sam Altman Friedman. Sam Altman denied her association with it, even though she has pictures of proofs of the original prototypes and designs of the World Coin Orb. I mean, it's just it's it's um. How did I missed, he turn? I missed my chance. Like Azalea Banks, uh, a few weeks ago was performing at a club right up the road from where I live. And Jay I, but, but I didn't see, I like literally I walked by this club every, like, oh like every God. other day on my Jay way ben. to like the grocery store. And what are you doing? My brother, I didn't see the, uh, the poster with her, like that listed her name until like a week after she had already performed. I was like, fuck, I missed my, I could have, I could have been Azalea, Azalea. I got questions about <laughs> Sam Altman, uh, Eli, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Music night. is great. Azalea. I fucking love it. It's so, but I got questions about other again. shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> Chips of the night, man. Oh, I know. I it's uh, I I believe in you. I if I'm sure you know, just do what you would do. Uh, manifest it. <laughs> yeah. You know, burn some sage. Um, I don't know what else goes in the ritual, but figure it out, and then and she'll be back. <laughs> she'll be back in Australia again. But I should also Sam Altman was yeah Sam Altman was involved with Worldcoin, but that was only his most recent like ex, like extremely failed, extremely stupid. Uh, but not even in like a like in a weird way. Long before that, people forget that Sam Altman has like a history of these uh, extremely failed, uh, not even interestingly stupid startups. As he's also uh, stupid. Max Reed. He's also stupid himself. <laughs> well, yeah, There's, he's also <laughs> a dullard. Um, but yeah, as Max. Max Reed calls it, right? An extremely failed, not even interestingly stupid startup. Uh, Sam Altman has a history of these. His original thing was a startup called, that he founded in 2005 uh, back in his Y Combinator when he was like part of Y Combinator, you know, before he became president of Y Combinator, but when he was actually like in 
Y Combinator uh, for this startup called Looped, uh, which L O O P T, uh, which is just a location sharing service for like your know, early generation of smartphones, right? Uh, like, and, and then he somehow, somehow, you know, parlayed that uh, into this reputation as a fucking like wonderkin boy genius in Silicon Valley, like. He's one of these people who has created an extremely successful career for himself and garnered this like really, you know, this, this reputation, this kind of mystique about him, not because of anything he's done, but because of his ability to make people think he has done stuff. Right. Uh, and, and then use that to get into these positions of like gatekeeping power, like at Y Combinator and then, at, you know, open AI. Right. Like he is, he, he is, uh, uh, like the paragon of, uh, of, of a particular Silicon Valley archetype. Right. The, the person who, uh, you know, and these are people like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, right? Like these people who they are entrepreneurs of themselves, right? They are not entrepreneurs of the sense that they have created something, uh, or have done something or have particular expertise. They have like meta expertise. They have like a meta reputation, right? Like they have a reputation for having a reputation. They have, a, they, their expertise is in the very act of entrepreneurship, right? Creating a story, marketing ideas, establishing a mystique about yourself, being somebody who knows people and being somebody who people want to know. Like, you know, that, that is the, the kind of guy Sam Altman is the, the kind of guy who is, you know, in charge of what is rapidly becoming one of the premier companies in Silicon Valley that is garnering exponential amounts of funding, you know, we're $10 billion alone from Microsoft, right? Like, uh, and, uh, and, and is, a uh, really like, paving the way, uh, if not technologically, then certainly in terms of the market uh, and the, the marketing for this like next generation of, uh, uh, of hype and investment uh, and applications around, you know, generative AI. Like, you know, th this is, we are not like, you know, much as we talk about the technocrats, uh, we are in fact the world is in fact largely led by and like Silicon Valley um, is, you know, in terms of being this epicenter of power and wealth is largely led by not technocrats, but these like entrepreneurs of the self, these people like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Sam Altman, right? These people who are their genius, if you want to call it that, you know, they're, they're, you know, tongue in cheek, uh, but their genius lies not in the technology, but in the, the myth making of the technology. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, and that's why like with those last, the last two questions here, they feed in right into that. Right. And the things that you just hit on right now, who's being exploited by this and how, I mean, this is, you know, your work through and through, uh, literally just thinking and paying attention to what is on the other end of this interface and how does it actually work? Who's doing the human labor? Why are they known or unknown? Are they hidden or unhidden? Like, are they visible or is it transparent? Is it visible? Is it legible? You know, like figuring out who is exploited by system and how and why, um, 
tell you about as much about the system as all the other questions about who is, uh, they tell you as much as like asking who's making money off of it. You know, who, what, what's the culture, what's the scene behind the developers who are driving it? What are the historical developments that have made this cycle different from the last? How does it work? What is it? I mean, these are all just as important as who is being exploited and why. And is it bullshit? Which is uh, always the uh, the number one question we love to ask over here at TMK, right? Is this thing that we're talking about just full of shit? Is it real? Is it fake? Is it um, is it Potemkin? You know, is it a facade? Is it an illusion? Most of the time, if someone if someone tells you something is going to change the world and transform it. It's usually bullshit. It's usually bullshit, but and not all the time. But sometimes, a lot of the time, most of the time, um, you know, these are all really good questions that are posed by Max. I think you know you should read the newsletter if you haven't already um, for that post. I think that you know these are questions to like just constantly have in the back of your mind as you're reading through things, especially because like as we talked about in a few weeks ago, right? Chat GPT um, four, by all accounts, is supposed to be incredibly impressive. Um, and the hype cycle for that will make this one look like uh, a blip um, or just like a snooze fest. And so it's ple- like you know, just keep keep the eye on the prize. You know, why are the, why are the, why are the uh, why are the paragons of the cyberpunk dystopia that is slowly being built around us pushing this sort of thing? And who's behind it? And what do they mean by it? And how is it happening? And who's funding it? Those are all the questions to keep in mind always. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and to that point, to those last points that Max raised and that we constantly raise at TMK, right? And, uh, you know, it is, I think, starting off the episode talking about the very top, right, is that we need to pay even more attention, you know, this is not new, this idea that like, there's a lot of hidden human labor, you know, Propping up, you know, not you know, training, propping up, supporting AI systems, or you know, just in like the purest of Potemkin fashion, um, you know, be t- pretending uh, that they're AI when they're actually not. And you know, this is not new. Uh, you know, I while I might coin the term P- to Potemkin AI, and you know, Astra coined the term Photomation. All you know, we did not come up with this idea that like these systems have people behind them right or or that all technologies have have labor behind them i mean you know my boy marx called machinery dead labor you know over 200 years ago because uh, for him he was he was already talking about how you know machinery is the embodiment of all the the labor power that has gone into creating it right and for him uh, the machinery is itself a form of dead labor to that he talks about how uh, in fact, I, I, I'm just going to pull up the, the quote here because it's, it's, it's so good. So, you know, Marx talks, talked about in Capital Volume 1, right, where he was uh, observing how, you know, capital innovates ways to further abstract and appropriate workers as merely, quote, a living source of value. Uh, and then he goes on, you know, treating them not, this is, this is me summarizing here, treating them not as humans, but as another component in the means of production, working with the dead labor materialized in technological systems and these organizational structures that facilitate capital. 
capital accumulation. I'll quote from Marx here now, right? That he says, factory work exhausts the nervous system to the utmost. And through the despotic discipline of dead labor used to dominate living labor, capital confiscated every atom of freedom from workers, both in bodily and intellectual activity. Uh, you know, and, and so there already, right? Like Marx is uh, talking about dead labor, you know, not only embodying living labor, but going on to discipline and control living labor, right? And the dead labor here is the machinery of the factory. Uh, and all we need to do is update that analysis to understand that, you know, digital platforms, AI systems, all of these things are also forms of dead labor that contain within them the labor power used to create them, but then go on to act uh, as this kind of managerial, uh, have this managerial control uh, over living labor and, you know, act as agents of capital uh, in the exploitation of living labor. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of political economic analysis is, uh, is always uh, necessary and always crucial. And even more so when you've got people telling you a system has no humans in it or it's escaped humans or it's uh, evolved beyond the human to up until now and in the foreseeable future always bullshit always you instead have to go look go look for the living labor used to create that machinery uh go look for the living labor that is being con uh, managed and controlled uh exploited by that machinery right and i think we have to increasingly as these systems get more complex and more advanced uh we have to look harder uh and look uh, uh in various places to find that living labor right I saw a tweet go getting passed around, you know, uh, our circles uh, of of people who you know comment and analyze this kind of technology. There's a you know a little mini viral tweet. Uh, it didn't break outside into the larger uh, Twitter sphere, but I, I saw it getting passed around where somebody was uh, saying, "I'll just quote from uh, the tweet by Dave Monlander." calls himself a theoretical physicist, mathematician, web developer, AI expert, you know, in his bio. But the tweet is interesting um, where he says, I just refused a job at OpenAI. The job would consist in working 40 hours a week solving Python puzzles, explaining my reasoning through extensive commentary in such a way that the machine can, by imitation, learn how to reason. ChatGPT is way less independent than people think. And I think that's interesting, right? That is another source of this kind of data labeling, data generation labor that's necessary for these AI systems. Um, and but here we see it being done at a uh, in a way that requires a lot of expertise and a lot of labor outside of like, you know, what we tend to think of, I think, and, you know, or for people who do think about this labor at all, they tend to think about it in terms of like, you know, drawing boxes around like CAPTCHA style, right? Like identify the car uh, in this picture or whatever. But here we see like really uh, complicated and complex expertise labor, expert labor here around like, you know, extensive, extensively explaining how to solve puzzle, you know, these Python puzzles, right? These like, you know, complex coding puzzles so that the, the uh, GPT can then go on 
and quote unquote learn how to reason, but more likely it is to uh, inst- what that really means is learn how to better imitate uh, people who know how to solve Python puzzles, right? Like that's what it looks like. Um, and so that, that, that's interesting though, but I think that's one side of this like labor that is going into creating these systems uh, and training them. There's also a whole other extensive, you know, market of labor going into supporting, propping up these systems in their application or in a lot of cases, standing in for the systems in application, right? You know, instead, you know, to, you know, looking at it from the other end, right? Not just the training in the, uh, but the, not just the, you know, the, the living labor used to create the dead labor, but on the other end, the way that dead labor dominates living labor or the way that living labor has to pretend to be dead, uh, in the, uh, in the application of the system. I think that's really interesting. And that's some, that's another area where we need to really pay a lot more attention to, um, what's going on because it's only getting more complex and it's also not just the typical uh, the the geography uh, of that labor is not only happening in the the way where you know analysts like us critics like us do tend to kind of be like oh that shit only happens in the global south right like that's only happening in like india right and like you know that is where a lot there's a huge concentration of it there because the labor is cheaper and easier to manage uh for sure but we also, I think, see a lot of this labor getting exported, uh, or rather onshored, uh, as, as I've, uh, I've heard, uh, other forms of, you know, as a poor, as opposed to the offshoring that was the kind of standard geo, uh, economy of, the last, you know, 20 years of capitalism was focused around offshoring work to the periphery. Uh, you know, we now are seeing a return to the, the onshoring of a lot of this labor, uh, in part because, you know, perhaps for various reasons, the labor needs to be, uh, geographically happening, uh, in, you know, North America, for example, or in the U, in Europe, the UK, whatever, right? Like Australia, right? It needs to happen there geographically for various reasons. Uh, or, you know, there might, or, or, uh, there, there might be other very good reasons or, or very bad reasons why this onshoring is happening. Well, you know, here's not the time to to get into a typography of why onshoring happens, but it is a trend that I think we see happening in a lot of, uh, industries now. And I, and, and that is very much also the case with a lot, with, you know, the, the kind of AI labor that we see, uh, creeping up as well. And there was a really, really excellent essay, a very long essay as well, um, by Laura Preston uh, in the latest issue of uh, N Plus One magazine called Human Fallback. Uh, And it's a a very long essay. You know, we don't have a lot of time to get into it in depth, but I I do recommend people give it a read because uh, the the author is herself a uh, a, a writer, um, a creative writer. And so it's, it, it's actually a, it's one of those essays that's a, a real joy to read, uh, in part because it's written really well, but also in part because it's a, it's a story, right? It's not just analysis. It's a story of her time working as 
as a as a bot working as a bot uh, for a one of the, one of these companies that offers these uh, that offers bot services for real estate and particularly rental uh, property management companies uh, around the U.S. Right, and so. You know, when you're off, when you're off looking for a rental unit somewhere and you're looking online, uh, and, and you know, you are, you know, you're looking for somewhere to live, you're looking for an apartment or something like that. You're on one of these websites. Uh, you know, a lot of times there's a chat service, right? Where you can, you know, ask questions about the, the, the unit. Uh, you can schedule viewings of the unit, uh, all of that stuff, you know, just in a chat service, uh, you know, that's on the website. A lot of these things are not run by the, the aggregate aggregator or the real estate agent or the property developer. They're all run, of course, by a third party that specializes in creating and running this chat service, which is then, you know, uh, sold as a service, as software as a service package to, uh, you know, rental uh, unit, you know, rental markets uh, around the U.S. Increasingly, uh, these things are also, these kind of chat services are increasingly the only way you can talk to a rent, a real estate agent as well. Uh, you know, in this article, uh, Laura Preston talks about how, like, uh, uh, you know, many re real estate agents have completely, uh, don't even have like phone numbers listed for their office where you can call them, right? You have to uh, text them uh, through this this uh, chat service or, or, or message them through this chat service. Uh, or if you try to call a number, uh, it won't pick up. And then you'll get a text message a few minutes later being like, you know, imitating a, a real life person being like, Oh, Hey, sorry, I missed you. I'm really busy right now. Um, but we, you know, we can message if you have any questions about that property, just send me a text. Right. And all this is a way of outsourcing, uh, to an onshored third party service, uh, the communication with, uh, uh, you know, between potential tenants, uh, actual tenants, uh, and the real estate, uh, uh, agent and owners, right? It's really, really interesting stuff as well, because I'll, you know, I just want to, I want to quote from, uh, a paragraph from Laura Preston's article here. Cause it's, I think it, her article, if you read it as well through the lens of everything we've just been talking about around like the political economy of AI and data and labor, uh, thinking about it in turn, uh, you know, through the concepts of Potemkin AI and photomation, thinking about it through technologies and trends around generative AI. Her essay, if you think of, if you read it while thinking about it through all of these different frames is extremely revealing of how this market and how these technologies are developing, right? Uh, yeah, I want to read a, a, a paragraph from the article here where she goes on to say, I was one of about 60 operators. Most of us were poets and writers with MFAs, but there were also PhDs in performance studies and comparative literature, as well as a number of opera singers, another demographic evidently well-suited for chatbot impersonation, or I suppose for impersonating a chatbot that's impersonating a person. 
We all convened on a Slack channel. Everyone was aggressively good-natured with leftist politics and pronouns in their display names. When we weren't talking about Brenda, this is the name of the chatbot, we were swapping syllabi, soliciting tattoo advice, and distributing e-flyers to our sound and movement workshops. In our midst, there were a handful of senior operators who acted as shift supervisors. Each day when we reported for work, one of them would hell us with a camp counselor's greeting, quote, top of the morning, my lovely Brenda's, they would say, and below their message, a garden of reaction emojis would bloom. Now, this is interesting, right? Brenda is the name of the chatbot, the, the real estate uh, agent chatbot that, uh, that they were all impersonating, right? And so here you have not your typical idea of people doing this kind of, you know, remote work where you are, uh, imperson, you're playing support for a chatbot, standing in for and impersonating a chatbot when it's, you know, very simple algorithmic, if this, then that. Uh, response to text messages starts to falter. Uh, and then, you know, a person has to, you know, steps in to take on the, the role of Brenda, the chat bot without breaking that character, right? Without, um, it's not the typical, uh, demographic of labor that you would expect to, of people to be doing this, right? It's very highly educated people from the arts, <laughs> people who in this economy, are unable to find employment elsewhere uh, or need a job that's a stopgap as they look for other employment. Uh, they need a job that's a bit more flexible that they can do from home uh, in the midst of uh, maybe, say, other freelancing hustles, uh, right? Uh, and uh, the, the company running this Brenda chatbot is able to uh, get all of the benefits from a highly skilled labor force, people with MFAs and PhDs and performance studies and poetry and literature, right? Uh, all of that funneled into uh, performances as chatbots, impersonating a chatbot named Brenda. It's it's extremely interesting uh, and revealing and strange uh, kind of glimpse into this this labor market here. You know, I think one thing I've always wondered is, is it just that every AI-related labor market resembles one another? Do they, is it, are they all just the same labor market in terms of conditions and how management works and, and the disposability of the workers and where the workers come from, even when it's not in the global south? It, just, it, it, it is always surprising how, how much the conditions always feel like they marry each other or rhyme with each other in one way or another when I would expect... I'd expect larger de deviations, um, but I also, but I also think that I don't know. I think you know, one, or at least one one thing I would love to know. Also, your thoughts on is you know maybe for the for the people who are, might be upset that we're too critical about AI. Are there such scenarios and situations you think where the labor conditions would look good? <laughs> you know, <laughs> would not. Um, you know, if, if using today's current systems, is there, uh, taking today's current systems and making a labor system that does look good, uh, or have an, have an end have end users training the data in ways that aren't exploitative, um, creating creating um, products uh, that at scale can be applied and deployed elsewhere. Like, is that possible at a, at scale? 
you think? I, I mean, I'm sure it is. Uh, for sure, it would look like... I mean, yes, uh, I'm not going to say I'm sure. Yes, it is possible, but it would be a system that would look radically different and be driven by different imperatives uh, than this system, right? Like, you know, I think one of the things that is... Uh, uh, Really, that is uh, very revealing about the kind of political economy of AI um, is the fact that it is so thoroughly capitalist, right? And and what I mean by that is that it is driven by uh, cost cutting, corner cutting, uh, you know, cheapness, right? Cheapness at scale. How do you get things to grow as fast and as big as possible and do so as cheaply and more and, pro- and most profitably? as possible, right? Well, the way to do that is to, uh, uh, to exploit as much labor as you can, right? And so here you have, you know, uh, a cutting edge, a supposedly cutting edge AI, uh, which is completely backstopped by uh, people with PhDs in literature, right? Like that's that's a really bizarre system at every, at any angle, right? Any, any, any second of thought would reveal, uh, that is extremely strange. Um, but it also means that you can like exploit that labor, right? Because that labor is not doing labor. It, that labor is not being, is not doing the labor that they're, that they're doing, right? Or rather, let, let me back up. That labor is not being paid for the labor that they're actually doing, um, because there's AI in the mix, right? And so it's like, Oh, you're not actually doing that. The AI is doing that. You're just helping to support the AI uh, in its in in the in the in the real work, the real important work that the AI is doing, right? But if you cut the AI out of the system, uh, the job looks exactly the same, right? And it's like, why do you have? Why do you need this supposedly cutting edge uh, chatbot AI, uh, which is actually you know, backstopped and supported and in large case, in many cases, and just pure impersonation of, of people with, you know, a, a lot of expertise involved in terms of like communicating with customers and answering questions and, you know, being both intuitive, you know, at once intuitive and articulate and sympathetic and sensitive, all these extremely human characteristics why do you need a chatbot there to do that? Well, the chat you need the chatbot there so that you don't have to pay the people for the labor that they're doing because they're not actually doing that labor according to you. You know, the entrepreneur, they're act, the, the AI is doing that labor. You're they're just supporting the that labor. And so, you know, all of this is a is is a way to say that like if you take the AI out of the system, does anything in terms of like what the system is doing, the labor that's being done, the outputs, does any of that change in any meaningful way? If the answer is no, then why are you, why have the AI there in the first place? And why not give, uh, all, why not give those people, uh, who are doing the real work, the, the money, respect and recognition? that they deserve for doing that work. Why expend all this fucking capital on a technology that doesn't work without the people there to make sure it works or the people there to stand in when it doesn't work, right? Well, the reason is, is because we have a lot of perverse incentives that uh, capital would rather burn, just fucking burn piles and piles of money in a you know uh, in, in any attempt 
to uh, not recognize and ultimately try to replace labor, right? Like capital would never give labor its fair share, its fair share of the value labor creates uh, because there would be recognition that would suddenly open the gate to the idea that maybe capital is not necessary uh, in this equation, right? And so capital has to expend massive amounts of money, burn massive amounts of money to create these convoluted Rube Goldberg devices, all so the idea that at some point they can do it without labor, right? At some point, they will finally be able to eliminate their, the, the, their class enemy. To me, an AI, that is like so much of AI to me is ultimately the, you know, the weapons that capital creates to circumvent, uh, you know, providing any kind of fair remuneration, recognition or respect to, to labor. On the other end, you know, on the other hand, though, if we think about systems where AI might actually be really useful and where it's actually doing something uh, that, you know, people can't do, you know, at scale or at speed that people can't do, or it's doing something that actually, you know, that might make uh, people's job easier, might, you know, universalize access to something. For example, I mean, think about something like medical AI, right? Like we could imagine a world where uh, you know, medical AI is used as a, a tool uh, to uh, help doctors do their job better or, or spend more time on the very human elements, the, the care, labor uh, of, of their job. We can imagine a world where that's possible rather than a world where this AI, where, where medical AI is actually meant to squeeze blood from the stone of the healthcare market, get more money, uh, process things at, you know, process people at speed, at scale, uh, you know, lower, lower thresholds of accuracy uh, and, you know, and quality, uh, you know, not pay. Uh, the people training these AI systems, right? The, the, uh, the, the fair wages they deserve. You know, I, I think if we think in a bigger way, like, you know, your question is essentially like, what does a, what is, what does a system of socialist AI look like? Right? Like we know what a system of cap of, of capitalist AI looks like because we, we live in that system as a system that we've been talking about for, for so long. What does a system of socialist AI look like? Well, I think it looks, it first and foremost has to look like a system that doesn't treat, uh, the creation of these systems in terms of like the the labor the data labor needed to generate clean refine uh, the data needed to train these systems and the you know at the very first and you know the the very early parts of the production system you know that would have to change immediately it does you know a socialist AI system does not look like a system that does that day that data labor in the cheapest most haphazard move fast break things way possible right like capital is addicted to cheapness capital thrives on finding and exploiting cheap stuff you know i think about the the uh, there's this book by raj patel and jason moore um this really interesting book called the history a history of the world and seven cheap things and they go on to talk about how like the 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 history of capitalism 
over the last 500 years or or or, or more really uh you know the the history of of colonial expansion the history of feudalism right like the history of these different political economic systems in the world is a history of people searching for the cheapest way to get the most you know that and they talk about things like you know cheap food cheap natures uh cheap you know cheap people right slavery was uh uh cheap people right that was that was uh uh that was capitalism and before that feudalism uh before that you know uh you know all these other systems of imperialism and domination uh you know that was them looking for the cheapest possible way to get labor. Well, the cheapest way is to not pay the labor, right? And I, and I think on a on a uh, we they they walk through seven of these different cheap things, you know. Uh, and I think we need to add with AI uh, another cheap thing, right? And that's cheap data, right? If you look at the way that these AI systems are trained, uh, they are trained. According to uh, a lot of garbage, right? A lot of garbage going in, and no surprise, you get garbage coming out, right? Because the incentive here is not to take the time and resources uh, necessary to actually generate high quality data that can be used and and at the scale needed to train these systems, right? That's very labor and resource intensive to create very large, very clean, very high quality data sets that can, that are created for purpose, you know, not repurposed for some, uh, for some system, AI system, but created for purpose of training a thing of a training a system to do a specific thing that that's cost a lot. And it requires a lot of time and attention and care and labor, uh, intention, planning, all of that stuff. Instead, what we see is uh, startups and companies searching for the cheapest possible data that they can find, whether it's fit to purpose or not, and then throwing that into a system and, 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 and just using what comes out, right? And so a lot of times that looks like stealing uh, data, scraping data, uh, repurposing data, uh, you know, all, all anything you can to create cheap data. I mean, there's, you know, extremely good case studies of these like very early, uh, data sets like ImageNet used to create, you know, early object recognition and facial recognition, machine vision software, um, and all of the biases and, and just pure shit. Uh, that's in those data sets because they were not created with care. They were not created for that purpose. Uh, they were not created with any kind of like quality control. Uh, and they were used as if none of those things matter, right? Like, so I think uh, at the very first instance, what does a means of production for AI look like under a socialist system? It looks completely different from the very beginning. Not even talking about now all of the reasons why you might produce AI for socially beneficial reasons. All the reasons why 
and how that AI might be used and who it might be used for under a system of, uh, uh, of, of justice and equity, right? Like that's going, all of those applications, all of that implementation is going to also look really different as does the production uh, of AI under uh, a, a socialist or a communist system compared to the existing capitalist system, right? Like this is why the political economy of these things matter uh, because it is not the case that you just go and flip the big switch that's uh, on capitalism and you flip it up to communism. Uh, and now all of a sudden the AI system is comrade AI uh, instead of boss AI, right? Like, no, that's not how this shit fucking works. Like, it really does have to start from stripping it to the bare bones and, and starting at the beginning, at the means of production. How was this thing created? Uh, you know, uh, and, and, then, and then going on from there. Damn, sounds like we just got to firebomb it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, strip it for parts, eliminate it, get it out of the way. In terms of the shit that like OpenAI is creating, right? Like I mm -hmm. think, yes, a lot of that is like, you know, we need serious analysis of the political economy of this from top to bottom, from, you know, production to application to implementation, you know, all of that, right? And I think we will find uh, failures and faults at every single instance, right? And a lot of times I think we will see systems that likely probably do not deserve to exist uh, in any way and certainly not in the way that they do exist. And I think on the other, on the other hand, we have a lot of systems, uh, these Potemkin AI systems where, you know, we really need to seriously question, you know, not is, you know, is there something of value happening here, but rather who is doing the value and is the AI, uh, intrinsic to that value? And I think a lot of times we will find, uh, that the answer is no. The AI is not doing something valuable and the AI, you know, or Potemkin AI system as it may be is not, uh, is not valuable, uh, in that, is not in integral to that, uh, value production. And so like, the uh, M plus one article, you know, maybe I'll just read a couple more, read, read a, a couple more paragraphs from the uh, article to end with just because I think they really put a, a point on, you know, really put a fine point on what I just said here. Laura Preston writes, there are moments when a full takeover was necessary. When Brenda did not understand a message and knew she did not understand, she tagged the message with human fallback. Human fallback was Brenda's white flag of surrender. With human fallback, Brenda ceded the conversation to me, and I had to assume her voice and affect. In training, we had been briefed on how to sound like Brenda. Brenda was cheaper and casual, but professionally guarded. She was female and most certainly white, though no one had explicitly told us so. She said things like, sounds great, perfect, and sorry to hear that. She always brought the conversation back around to real estate. 
And then Laura goes on to write, you know, after a, after a long time of doing the job and, you know, really trying to put her all into it uh, and, and, you know, give as much of this, you know, of their care labor, give Brenda as much of a human touch as she possibly could, um, while all the time, you know, being subjected to uh, Brenda's own commands, right? Only, go, you know, needing to support Brenda, needing to ensure Brenda was uh, providing responses to messages that made sense, stepping in for Brenda when Brenda was lost, right? Um, eventually, this all wore down uh, and Laura found herself no longer trying to make Brenda more human, but finding that she was herself becoming more like Brenda, a chatbot. So she, uh, uh, Laura Preston goes on to write, eventually I reached a level of virtuosity where I could clear the inbox without much mental effort. The work no longer felt language based. I was not reading a message. I was not reading messages one word after another, but perceiving each message as a unified cipher, as if the block of text were an image. My eyes would apprehend the web of critical words, pets, rents, utilities, and my hands would hit keys like notes in a musical passage. I stopped worrying about Brenda's tone and began letting any message through as long as it was factually accurate. I realized that when Brenda sounded odd and graceless, people were less likely to get intimate, which meant less human fallback, which meant less effort for me. Months of impersonating Brenda had depleted my emotional resources. I no longer delighted in those rambling, uninhibited messages full of voice and human tragedy. All I wanted was to glide through my shifts in a stupor. It occurred to me that I wasn't really training Brenda to think like a human. Brenda was training me to think like a bot. And perhaps that had been the point all along. I think this is interesting. I want to I want to end on that point because this is this is again something really crucial here. In the in a system where the chatbot is supreme, right? Where the chatbot, where the AI system is an agent of capital and the dead the dead labor of the chatbot is used to discipline uh, and command and control the living labor that is necessary for its development, training, support, and at times impersonation. When in a system such as that one, the late labor is trained to become more like the machine. This is also something Marx talked about 200 years ago in terms of factory labor, right? The factory worker became more like a machine because they became you know, chained to the machine. The machine set the pace of their job. The machine commanded the content of their labor, their job, right? The machine directed them in every way. And so living labor becomes more and more like dead labor. It's undead labor, right? It, it's zombie labor where it's living, but it might as well be dead. And I think we see exactly this happening with the kind of labor that uh, is needed to you know, keep this chatbot running, to keep Brenda going. Uh, is you know, It's exactly what Laura described, right? Early on, she spent so much time trying to make dead labor more like living labor. But in reality, that's a that. That we live in a system where that's not the point. The point is to make living labor more like dead labor, to make the human more like the bot, uh, right? 
And so this is also, I think, something very uh, important when we talk about robots taking our jobs, AI systems taking our jobs, right? I think more often than not, we won't see full-scale replacement we will instead see augmentation, right? But not augmentation such as where, you know, the bot makes your job easier, more free time, more leisure, less effort, and instead makes your job more machine-like, right? Like you, the worker, need to act more like the machine. You need to work at the pace the machine sets in the way the machine works, tireless, never complaining, always accurate, always working, always producing, right? Like if if you can't have bots, then you might as well have people who act like bots. And that is really what I think is what's happening here uh, under a system of capitalist AI. That's your TMK uh, for the for the free feed this week. Uh, thank you all uh, for listening. You can find us over at the premium feed at patreon.com slash this machine kills. I, I, I said, you know, we said last week we expect more, you know, we expect we'd be doing more episodes, more talking about uh, AI generally and generative AI specifically this year. And I, I didn't expect it to be already happening so soon, but clearly there's a, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of analysis needed. There's a lot to be said, uh, about these systems. Um, and, and I think as well, it's a real first as far as thin as tragedy, uh, kind of inversion of the rule, because I think the, to the degree that web three was farce, I think AI is going to be much more tragic, right? To the degree that AI or that Web3 was uh, just on its face, silly, stupid, stupid, based on fiction, uh, you know, uh, just farcical in every way. uh, uh, To the degree that that was true, I think AI AI is is going to be... uh, also very stupid and fictional and farcical, but in a much more tragic way uh, and, and, and much more impactful uh, deflationary way than, uh, than Web3 was. Uh, this, is, this is something I, I, I fear to be the case. Um, no, without as, a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without an absolute doubt. All right, boys. Well, on that note, then, <laughs> let's wrap it up there. Uh, and we will catch everybody in the premium feed uh, or next week on the free one. Until then, later. Adios.
killed.